You know, Paul the Apostle was a champion of the liberty that we have in Christ. He wrote in Galatians that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That Jesus came to set us free. That the Christian life is a, a life of liberty. It's a, it's a life of freedom. It's a, a life that is really meant to be a joy in joy. Jesus said, you know, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And a great part of that abundant life is the freedom that we have in Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 6.22, in Christ we have been set free from sin. And in Romans 8 verse 2, that we are set free from the law of sin and death. This is the freedom that we have in Christ. This is what the gospel does when it, in, in, it penetrates a person's heart and mind as it opens up you know, their life to this freedom, this joy, this what we get to experience of living with Jesus. In Colossians 1 verses 22 and 23, Paul wrote that in Christ we are free from the accusations of the enemy. He would write in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That, that Satan, he can try to accuse you. He loves to. He's the accuser of the brethren. But it doesn't stick when you're in Christ. There's no condemnation. There's no accusation. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul wrote that in Jesus we have freedom to approach God in confidence. So Paul championed our freedom in Jesus and he vigorously defended it against those who would attack it through legalism. For instance, in the book of Galatians, um, Paul said, if someone preaches a different gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. Now that's strong language. If somebody comes along and they're you know, preaching something else to you, something different to you than the simple gospel that, that we gave to you of, of Jesus and what he did on the cross, if anybody wants to add to that, let them be accursed. You see, the false teachers in Galatia were coming into the church and saying that in order to, be, to really be saved, that you also needed to be circumcised. They were saying that, look, believing in Jesus was good, but it wasn't enough. That you had to also be circumcised. In other words, you had to be converted to Judaism. And this is what Paul said. He said, I wish that those who are preaching that would castrate themselves. That's heavy. But that's literally what he was saying when he said, I wish that they would cut themselves off. He was saying, I wish that they would castrate themselves. That's how vigorously and how strong that Paul was against anyone that would come against and try to add to the gospel and put legalistic trips upon believers. Anyone who brought a message that was Jesus plus something else, Paul would come down heavy on them. He was a champion of our liberty in Christ. But that being said, Paul also realized that the Christian liberty needed to be used rightly, especially in dealing with issues that were not dealing with the gospel and issues that were not black and white in scripture. You know, there's a lot of things that are just black and white that we know. This is sin and this isn't. It's black and white. 
But there's a lot of areas that fall into what we might describe as the gray areas, things that were basically a matter of conscience, a, a matter of personal conviction where you know one person might feel this way and another person might feel that way and neither of them are necessarily wrong. Um, they, they, they both, there's the freedom in Jesus to have our own conviction about these things and that's what Paul is dealing with here in chapters 8 through 10. And a big issue that the believers, especially in the Gentile cities, were dealing with was, is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Look at verse 1. He says, now concerning things offered to idols. Another translation puts it, now concerning your question about things offered to idols. You see, in that culture, there really weren't restaurants like we have today. You know, they didn't have chilies and Applebee's and, you know, these different restaurants that we love to, to go to. And they're open now, right? <laughs> Praise God. But uh, they didn't have those things. And so the place where people would go to eat and purchase meat was in the pagan temples. And you see, when an animal was to be sacrificed, part of the animal would be consumed on the altar. But another part of the animal, usually the best choice of meat, was available for consumption there at the temple. It was like, hey, let's sit down. Now, after we've worshipped, let's sit down and let's have dinner. Or they would take that choice piece of meat to the market that was called the shambles. I have no idea why it was called that. Um, and it would be sold there. And somehow they would label it and you would know that this meat was from the temple. That it was meat that, that was used in the sacrifice to idols and it was the best cut of meat and it was at the best prices. And so all the steak lovers say amen, right, to that. So this is where the tension came in is there were some people who loved buying this meat at the bargain price. And they looked at this whole situation in this way. They'd say, they, you know, this was their thinking. An idol's nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of stone. There's only one true God. That's Jehovah. These false gods are not really gods at all. So those people had no problem eating the meat that was sacrificed to these idols. Because they're like, hey, an idol's nothing. So this is not a big deal. But there were others in the church who believed that to eat this meat that was sacrificed to the idols was actually partaking in the idolatry. And to associate with that at all reminded them of the old lifestyle that they had come out of. That they had been the ones who had been going to the temples there in Corinth and sacrificing to these idols. And so this is the lifestyle that they had come out of and they wanted no part of it. And so they were like, no way, I am not eating any meat that's been associated at all with idols. Now let me ask you this question. I don't want you to answer out loud, but just kind of to yourself. Which, I got two questions for you, and I want you to think about this. I want you to answer this honestly, okay? There's no test. I'm not going to be quizzing you. I'm not going to be embarrassing anybody. But just I want you to answer this. Which group would you be in? Would you be in the group that said, hey, an idol is nothing. So bring it on, man. Let's cook that juicy steak. Let's get into it. Or would you be in the group that's saying, no way, I want nothing to do with 
anything going on in the temple? That's the first question. Which one of those groups would you be in? Here's question number two. Which group do you think would make up what we might call or Paul might call the mature believers? And which group would be the immature believers? Or to put it the way that Paul does, which group would be categorized as the weaker brothers and sisters? And which group would be you know, categorized as the stronger brothers and sisters? Which group would be the weaker? Would it be those who ate the meat or those who refused to eat the meat? That's the tension that Paul is dealing with here in chapters 8 through 10. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in these chapters. And this is going to be, you know, everything's connected here to this first part here in chapter 8. And so this is going to be our outline over the next couple of weeks. In chapter 8, Paul gives principles for exercising our Christian liberty. How we're to exercise. How we're to walk in liberty with our brothers and sisters. In chapter 9, Paul's going to use himself as an example of exercising this principle. And then in chapter 10, Paul uses the history of Israel as an example of not exercising this principle correctly. Now, although these issue or this issue of eating meat that's sacrificed to idols is not something that's an issue in our culture. I doubt that any of you or even any of your neighbors have, you know, little shrines in their backyard that they're sacrificing little lammies or kitties or, you know, whatever to, and then barbecuing afterwards and saying, hey, let's come on, why don't you come over and let's, you know, let's eat some cat or whatever, you know, they're not doing that, that would be gross anyway, but we can apply the principles that Paul puts forth here to any of the issues that are what we would call matters of conscience that we do deal with in our culture. You see, matters of conscience are those things that are not black and white in Scripture. Matters like, or for instance, alcohol consumption. Matters like entertainment choices. Matters like food consumption, what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat. Um, Everybody has opinions about that. Um, Whether to watch sports or not. Um, Whether, you know, to listen to, is it okay to listen to music that is not Christian? You know, should we, you know, stay with sacred music or is it okay to listen to some secular music? And, And where would, you know, Beethoven and Bach and Mozart fit into, you know, all of that type of thing? So these, the principles that we're going to be talking about tonight and over uh, at least the next, next week, maybe the following week, is um, principles that we can apply to all these kind of issues that we still are dealing with in our culture today. So again, let's go back to the beginning. He says, now concerning things offered to idol, we know that we all have knowledge. So Paul's saying here, we, we know that there is understanding from Scripture concerning these things. But knowledge alone, you see, is not enough. You see, knowledge just by itself can damage. It can cause damage. Wisdom, though, is the right application of knowledge. So Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So before answering this question, Concerning meat being offered to idols, Paul begins by addressing this foundational issue. Knowledge, it puffs up, but love edifies or love builds up. 
You see, I can have the right knowledge about something, but I can use that knowledge in the wrong way. You see, if I'm just seeking to throw my knowledge about something in the face of others, you know, sometimes we do that. We're so strong in our opinion about something and we want to just throw that in somebody else's face. That's being prideful. That's not being loving at all. Or if I'm trying to use my knowledge to persuade somebody to my point of view, but it's somebody that doesn't want to be persuaded, that too is not healthy. That's being prideful. That's trying to force my opinion, my convictions on someone else. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that's really the goal. So in matters of Christian liberty that are dealing with these matters of conscience, again, matters that are not black and white, but are more our personal convictions, Paul's going to give us in these chapters three key principles in dealing with exercising our Christian liberty. This is going to be what we're going to see in these three chapters. Principle number one is that we are to choose fellowship or love over our personal freedom. That's number one. Principle number two is we're to choose the gospel over our personal freedom. That's what we'll see in chapters 9 and 10. And at the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that we're to choose what is going to glorify God the most. Now, we're going to look at principle one tonight, and hopefully next week we'll look at principles um, two and three. So again, now concerning things offered to idol, we know that, all, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And he says, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, he's saying this. Anyone who claims to know, have all the answers really doesn't know very much. Those people that want to come across like they're know-it-alls, Paul's saying they really don't know that much at all. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You see, John in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 4, told us this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Remember what Jesus said? Hey, this is how you're going to know that, that you're my disciples. It's not going to be by how many Bible verses that you can quote. It's not going to be by the cool songs that you sing. It's not going to be, you know, by the things that you do, you know, uh, in my name. It's going to be when they see the love that you have for one another. And this is what John is saying, that those who know God are people that love one another. Why? Because God is love. And so the key principle in dealing with these matters of conscience is we want to walk in love. And Paul's going to tell us what that looks like. So he says in verse 4, therefore, now he's going to get into this little argument and tension. Concerning the things offered to idols, we know. Everybody say, we know. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So Paul's saying, look, this is the knowledge that we have, that we know. This is what is in Scripture, that an idol is nothing. Let me read to you from Psalm 115. The psalmist writes, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. That's our God. He's in heaven. He's on the throne. He does whatever he pleases. Our world is, you know, looks crazy at times. God's still in control. God's still on the throne. 
He's allowing things to you know, happen in our world. Our God, he's on the throne. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold. The work of men's hands, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not shake. They have feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. He's saying that they're made of wood and they can't do anything. It's basically what the psalmist is saying. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, um, he paints an interesting picture. He says, you know, there's a man. He goes out and he cuts down a tree. And with the same wood from that tree, he builds a beam for his house. He also uses it to make fire so that he can warm himself and to cook food. And then he fashions with it an idol that he falls down and worships. Now, when you think about it in that way, from the same tree, all of, that sounds silly, right? Like, come on, dude, what are you thinking? What are you doing? And that's kind of Isaiah's point. So Paul's saying, look, scripture's clear. We know this, that an idol is nothing, that there are no other gods but the one true God. And then he says in verse five, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're told that an idol, behind the idol, that they, the pagans would make, there was a demon behind those idols. In fact, in chapter 10, Paul says that those who are sacrificing to these idols are actually sacrificing to demons. And so Paul makes this link, as well as Deuteronomy, that there is a spiritual component in the idolatry so that it's not, you know, idol worship, idolatry in that day, it wasn't just an empty ritual. It was demonic, and one who would, you know, enter into that was opening themselves up to the demonic world. So he says, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God. The Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So Paul's saying, so we are clear in our knowledge, you know that you believe that, you know, idols are nothing. And he's saying, all of you who believe that, all of you are secure in that, then hey, get your meat and eat away. That's going to be Paul's point. Okay, those of you who, that's your liberty, that's your freedom. You know, hey, I used to worship at that pagan temple, but you know, that's nothing. That means nothing to me anymore. But man, that's a great steak. I'm gonna go there and buy it. I'm gonna go there and and I'm gonna have one. And Paul says, go for it, go for it. But then he says this, however, there is not, verse seven, there is not in everyone that same knowledge, So not all believers know this, in other words. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So here's what Paul's saying. Some of the people, some of the believers, still had an issue with this. That they were accustomed because they were accustomed to thinking that these idols were still real. And so when they ate food that had been offered to the idols, they were thinking, you know, hey, we're worshiping these real gods. And Paul says that their weak conscience is violated. 
So here Paul identifies that the weaker brother or sister, here's the answer to your question, the weaker brother or sister is the one who thinks it's wrong to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, and their conscience bothers them. Now in a lot of ways, I think that really surprises us. Because I think we have this tendency to look at brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and to think those, that those who are living more rigidly, you know, those who, you know, lives are full of a lot of rules and regulations, a lot of times we have a tendency to think that they're a lot more spiritual because they are living, you know, such rigid lives, um, and the more rigid they are, the more spiritual that they are. But Paul said that's not necessarily the case. In this case, those who were more rigid, those who were like, no way, I'm not going near that at all. Paul said they're actually the weaker brother. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, but understand, but food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. He says, basically, look, what you eat or don't eat doesn't affect your relationship with God. There's freedom in this matter. So if I want to go down after church tonight to Rite Aid and get a big triple scoop of, you know, chocolate chip ice cream, get off my back, all right? You know, it's okay. Paul said, go for it, you know, we can do that. But notice where this principle of choosing love and fellowship over our freedom comes in. Notice verse 9. He says, but beware. Everybody say beware. Beware. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to the idol? Now notice this. To the mature believer who have the knowledge that the idol is nothing and that eating meat sacrificed to idol is not a big deal, Paul says, beware. Beware. He says, be careful. He says, you need to be cautious that your liberty doesn't cause someone else to stumble. Now, here's the question. And I want you to think about this. How, according to what Paul's saying here, how would they be made to stumble? How would they be made to stumble? Here's the answer. By doing something that violates their conscience. That's the issue. And that's the issue that we need to be concerned about. I don't want my brother or sister to, I don't want to do anything that's going to cause my brother or sister in the Lord to violate their conscience. You see, sometimes we take this idea of stumbling and we think, well, you know, hey, I have this liberty I'll use alcohol, for instance. Somebody, you know, that says, you know, I, hey, I have, I have this liberty. You know, the Bible says to not get drunk, and I never, ever get drunk. I don't even come close, but I like to have a beer after work, or I like to have a glass of wine, you know, with my dinner type of a thing. And that person will say sometimes, now, you know, I just don't get this idea. How, how is me, you know, having a beer going to cause my brother to stumble, you know? And, and the idea is like they're thinking that how is that going to cause that person to, you know, sin and go get drunk? And that's what they're thinking when they think of stumbling. Paul 
brings it way further back than that. And he says, look, this, the issue of stumbling, it's not about what they do. It's not about, you know, that person going and exercising a liberty that they don't have and, and getting drunk. I mean, yeah, that would be horrible in and of itself. But Paul's saying that the very act of them just even, you know, going and, and, and you know, having a beer, not even getting close to drunk, but, but in their heart, because of the lifestyle that they've come out of, they said, you know what, I just need to stay away from that, that they would be violating their conscience, And that's what you want to be concerned about. You don't want to do anything that's going to encourage your your brother or sister to do something that violates their conscience. And so we need to be extra careful. We need to be concerned about that, that we know the convictions of somebody else. And we want to be, you know, concerned. I don't want to do something that's going to cause that person to do something that might violate their conscience. And so this is interesting to me. That in all the writings of Paul on this subject, and I want you to hear this, need to hear this, Paul places the greater responsibility on the person who has liberty to walk in love. The greater responsibility is on the person who realizes the freedom that we have in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 11. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? That word perishes, be destroyed. And the idea is that their walk would be affected, it would be destroyed because of the condemnation that would come upon them because they did something that violated their conscience. And Paul's reminding, hey, this is somebody that Jesus died for, that he loved This is somebody that was rescued out of the depths of sin, just like you. So Paul says, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now guys, that is such a heavy thing there. Heavy thing to think about. That when you and I exercise our liberty with no concern for our brothers and sisters who might be watching or who are around, who have a weaker conscience, and their conscience is then violated, this is what Paul says, you're the one who is sinning, and you're sinning against your brother. You're sinning against your sister. That's heavy, right? That's like, wow, But then he goes further. Not only am I sinning against my brother, but I'm actually sinning against Jesus. Why? Because that person, that brother or sister, they are a part of the body of Christ. They're a part of Jesus. They're connected to Jesus. That's like a double wow, right? You see how heavy this is? You see in the responsibility, Paul's saying, hey, for those of you who have liberty, this is your responsibility to walk in love, to be careful, to walk and to live in in a mindset where you're thinking more about your brother and sister than you are about your freedom and your rights in Christ. 
that you are choosing love and fellowship over your own personal freedom. So he's saying, you have a responsibility, you who have liberty have a responsibility to not try and use your knowledge to convince somebody who doesn't have that liberty. I hate when Christians do this. You know, they're talking with somebody and they, you know, disagree on one of these gray areas and they're sitting there trying to convince the, the person who has the, the weaker conscience why they're wrong. That's not your responsibility. That's not what you're called to do. Your role isn't to try to use your knowledge to try and persuade them why they are wrong to feel the way they do, unless they ask, unless they come and like, hey, you know, can I talk to you about this? Well, then you can open up scripture. You can show them, like in this case, well, hey, let's go back to Psalm 115. Let's see what the psalmist said about that. Let's go back and, and talk about what Isaiah said in Isaiah 44 about the idol. Let's go to this place. There's several places that they could go in scripture to point out and say, hey, this is what the Bible says about this. But if somebody, you know, they're not at that place yet. You know, they've come out of a lifestyle and they're like, you know, man, I just don't want anything to do with my past. Anything that, that is any, you know, part of where I used to be and what I used to do, I want no part of that whatsoever. And Paul's saying, look, your role isn't trying to persuade them and to convince them because that's unloving. But you see, that's what a lot of Christians do. Because a lot of Christians, you know, they want to exercise their liberty wherever and whenever, you know, they, they want to without regard to anybody else. And that's unloving. That's not being like Jesus. So Paul's saying, look, no, you who are the stronger, the more mature brother and sister, it's your responsibility to walk in love. Your role is out of love to, def to, to, to defer to that person and to prefer that person who has the weaker conscience. And this is how Paul explains it in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's heavy. Here's the big idea. Because my goal is to build up others, I will choose to love and I will choose love and fellowship over my own personal freedom, even if that means forsaking my own personal liberty. And here's I want to ask you that question. Think about one of those gray areas that we're talking about that are in our culture. Music, entertainment, you know, big one today is, you know, let's boycott sports or, you know, whatever. And everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a conviction. Are you willing, out of love for your brother or sister, to forfeit that forever? So Paul says, never again. If, if, it, if, if I have to, I'll never again eat meat. I'll become a vegan, you know? <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> you can tell I'm a meat lover, man. <laughs> My wife is always asking me what I want to eat, and I'm like, anything that has meat in it, you know? But, uh, but it's heavy to think about that. 
that Paul was willing to forfeit his liberty rather than make his brother or sister or stumble. Why? Because he valued them as being people that Jesus had died for, that people had, that, that Jesus had redeemed, people that were a part now of his family. And so he was saying, look, I want to choose to walk in love, even if that means having to sacrifice my own Christian, my own liberty in this area. You might, you might think, well, why would he do that? I mean, that just seems so silly. I mean, can't, can't, you know, what, why can't that person just grow up? I mean, that's the mentality. Why can't that person just grow up? Well, hey, all of us, I tell you this all the time, none of us have arrived. We're all broken people who are in the process of being um, transformed by a loving redeemer. That's where all of us are at. And all of us have been, you know, whether you've been a Christian a week or 20 years, you look back and, and you can see, you know, areas where you have grown. I'll give you an example. There was a time in my life when it related to, to music where I was like hard fast in that, you know, area of, you know, I am not listening to any secular music whatsoever. Secular music is of the devil, you know. And then Larry Norman came out with that song, Why Does the Devil Have All the Good Music? And I was like, amen, you know. And, and, uh, but for a long time, Christians just didn't make music that was as good as the, you know, the, the unsaved people did. And so that was frustrating, you know, because there wasn't the, quite the comparison that if you are a music lover and, you know, that type of thing. And, and so for a long time, I lived in that realm as a, as a high school pastor, you know, I would sit there and preach and, you know, hammer the kids. You shouldn't listen to devil music. And, you know, and we had that whole season. This will take some of you back and some of you will think, what are you talking about? But there was this whole season in the church where there was this, these guys going around and, and they called it backward um, masking, I think is what they, they called it. And they would literally play these song, these records. <laughs> a record, if you don't know, it's a little, you know, round thing that you put on a little spinal thing and plays music. But they would play these things backwards and they would say these crazy, you know, sounds. And a lot of times it was, you know, like you'd, you'd think like, worship Satan, you know, and it, that's what it sounded like because they told you that's what it sounded like and this kind of thing. And, and so, you know, we're in, in, in that whole realm. And then, you know, as I grew, I began to realize that, you know, it's not an issue. The issue is not, you know, okay, this was produced by a Christian, so this is sacred, and this was produced by a non-believer, and so this is secular and pagan. The real issue was this. I need to, as a Christian, become, I need to become a discerning listener, and there's a lot of music out there that is really, really good, written by people that don't know Jesus, but they you know, sing about great social causes, or they sing about great family matters, or you know, like there's instrumental music that was made by guys that has nothing to do, you know, they, they weren't Christians at all, but it's beautiful music that I love to listen to when I'm studying. And so the issue became, you know, one in maturity of, you know, hey, I need to become a discerning listener. I need to teach others as a pastor how to be discerning listeners, 
how to look at it and see, okay, is this something that defies, defiles God? Is this something that uses God's name in vain? Is this something that is singing about things that God doesn't um, uh, condone in his word? Is this something that's encouraging premarital sex? Or is this something that's, you know, encouraging adultery? Or, you know, like a lot of the country songs, um, you know, is this something that is, you know, going down that road? And, and, and so to, you know, to think in those terms, And I had to pull back and realize, you know, I was doing the very thing Paul says here not to do. And I had kids like in our youth group that were coming out of the world and, and, uh, you know, they liked all their music and that type of stuff. And our Christian music wasn't, you know, up to par. I mean, this is a long time ago, guys. We're talking like in the 80s. And, uh, but they, you know, it wasn't up to par as to what they were listening to. And, and so to tell them, hey, you got to give up all your music was like a culture shock for a new believer, you know. That's a little bit different than what Paul's talking about here, a little bit different argument. But, you know, the point of it is, is, you know, coming to that place of learning how to walk in love toward those who have different convictions than what we have. So the reason why I would do this, the reason why, you know, Paul would say, I'm willing to to give up my liberty so that somebody else doesn't stumble is because he saw the big picture. That the Christian life is about being like Christ. And it's about modeling Christ to others and the world. And so Paul's saying, I will choose to love, I will choose love and fellowship over my own personal freedom, my own personal convictions. And that in and of itself is extremely freeing. It's extremely freeing to think in that way. To think that I have the ability to enjoy in Jesus everything that God has for me. That there's so much that God has for us in Christ. And I have the freedom to enjoy that. But I also have the freedom in Jesus to enjoy everything that God makes available to us. In our worlds. In this life. That I can enjoy great food. That I can enjoy good music. That I can enjoy special places. That I can enjoy the arts and artists and those who you know, are gifted in, in portraying things and painting things and, and all that. That I can enjoy gifted people. And I have the freedom to live in a way that is mindful of the people around me. This is a freeing way to live. I have the freedom to live in a way that seeks to build up others rather than tear them down. Now, we're going to see next week that Paul is going to use himself as an example of the person living in this freedom in Jesus. But he's going to add a little twist to the conversation by talking about how the way we live affects us unbelievers. You see, in chapter 8, he's talking mainly about believers with believers and, and you know, how we deal with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Well, in chapter 9, he's going to begin to talk about how he lived in this way and how he sought to consider his, the freedoms that he had in Christ and how that affected people who were unbelievers. And Paul, because his focus was to choose the gospel over his own personal freedom, and he would go on to say this. We'll talk about this next week. Paul says, I've, I've become all things to all men for this reason, that I might win 
some. And guys, that's a great mindset to have. It's a great mindset to have. It's a great focus to have, but it starts here. It starts in these relationships. It starts in our relationships within the body of Christ. It starts with loving our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And and it starts by using the liberty that we have in Christ rightly. So whatever the gray area is that that you might be dealing with, I want you to encourage you to ask yourself this question. If I exercise this liberty especially out in public, is it going to cause a brother or sister that I know to violate their conscience? Is it going to cause them to do something that in their own personal convictions they know isn't right for them? That they know that, hey, they don't have that liberty. I'll give you another example on the issue of, um, you know, secular music. Jason Duff. You guys know Jason. Love Jason. And, and this was also something <laughs> Jason went through as a youth pastor too, kind of hammering, you know, all of that. But he did it for a different reason because um, when Jason, before he really began to walk with Jesus, when he was in college, you know, he kind of got into a worldly living and lifestyle and that type of thing. And all of those songs that he would listen to reminded him of those days. So in his mind, he's like, I want nothing to do with that. I want no part of that. I don't even want to hear that because it just takes me back to a place that I don't want to go, that I don't want to be. And so that was, you know, his conviction um, on that. And so you know, we want to ask ourselves this question, if I exercise this liberty out in public, could it cause a brother or sister to violate their conscience, to violate their own conviction? If the answer is yes, don't do it. Don't do it. See, you are free, this is the key, to choose love. And you are free in Jesus to model the heart and the mindset of Jesus. And that's what we're called to as believers. That really is what true freedom is all about. Is that we are free to be loving and to be like Jesus. And that's the calling that we have. As God has placed us in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just the clarity with which Paul writes in this passage concerning this issue of Christian liberty, concerning this issue of our freedom in Christ. And Lord, although none of us here are dealing with this issue of should I eat meat sacrificed to idols, there are other things that are much more culturally relevant for us. And God, I pray that each one of us would seek to walk in wisdom and to walk in love. That we would be those who out of love for you and love for our brothers and sisters that you died for and you shed your precious, sinless blood for, that we would be willing to choose love and fellowship over our own personal 
freedoms. That we would be those that would live with the sensitivity toward our brothers and sisters who have different convictions than what we do. That when the world looks at us, that they would see in us people who are given to love. People who are deferring to one another. Preferring one another above ourselves. Because that mindset, that example that that you exemplified for us by leaving heaven and coming to this earth and becoming a man and humbling yourself and making yourself dependent upon your heavenly father. It's that example and mindset that is so foreign in this world where most people live to please themselves, where most people are thinking about how can I get mine, where most people are thinking how can I use this person to get what I want or to get ahead or to accomplish my goals. But Lord, you've called us to not be those who use people, but to be those who serve people and love people. And that in doing that, in living in that way, that they would see Jesus in us. So God, do that work in us, Lord. God, we thank you. We praise you.